Every technology ever developed by man has an upside and it has downsides. The church bells of the Middle Ages, right, had a huge upside, which was to draw people into church. It had a huge downside when they were turned into the first canons. Welcome to NatSec Tech from the Special Competitive Studies Project. I'm Jean Meserve. China and the United States are in a high-stakes technological competition, and China is pulling out all the stops to win, including upping its espionage game. How is the U.S. intelligence community coping? Is it using the latest technologies, leveraging available data, working effectively with the private sector? We're going to explore all of that and more with our guest, Michael Morell. He is the former acting director and deputy director of the Central Intelligence Agency, where he received multiple honors for his work. Today, he serves on several boards, including those of Fortress Investment Group and Orbis Operations. He is the author of The Great War of Our Time, and he also advises SCSB's intelligence panel. Great to have you with us. Gene, it is great to be with you. So first, let's talk about what China is doing in the intelligence sphere. Has it changed its tactics? Is it doing things differently than it did historically? So, so, so one thing that it is doing the same, something it has always done, is, and it's something we don't do. Right? Everybody spies. Everybody spies. Um, but one of the things that China does is it steals intellectual property and gives it to its companies to give them a competitive advantage. We do not do that. We never have done that. Uh, that's a very important distinction. So they've done that in the past. They continue to do that. Um, their, their methods, though, have changed. So the traditional method was simply to talk to their own citizens who are overseas, who are interacting with Western businesses, who are interacting with Western governments, and talking to them when they return and, get, and, and getting that take, right? That, that, was, that was the number one way that they spied originally. That, that continues, right? That's still a method. But now they've moved to more traditional collection of intelligence methods, more like the US does, which is te technical collection, um, think of the spy balloon, right? Um, and and more traditional human, where you're actually you know spotting, assessing, um, and recruiting an individual to spy for you. So um, and 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 I guess the third point I'd make is is bringing more resources to it than ever before. So um, scaling up, right? They've scaled up their intelligence capabilities against us. Is the U.S. intelligence community coping with this as well as it should? Um, so here we're talking about counterintelligence, right? Here we're talking about efforts by the United States to prevent them, right, from spying. Um, that's that's a responsibility of, of, of the CIA and NSA in one respect and a responsibility of the FBI in another respect. From the perspective of the CIA and NSA, we need to be penetrating their government to understand what they're doing in terms of spying on us, right? Some of our, some of our most um, significant successes in counterintelligence against the Soviet Union was penetrating their services to know what they were doing against us. That's the responsibility of CIA and NSA. Um, the responsibility of the FBI is to actually catch people, right, in the act of spying, you know, once they're here. Um, my, my, my guess, right, I don't, 
I, I'm not privy to this information. I've been out of government for 10 years. I don't get briefings on this kind of thing. Um, but my guess would be that um, they've, they've got a number of wins, right? And we've got a number of wins. So there have been a number of individuals in the United States who have been arrested for spying for China in the last several years, right? Those are all wins. Um, what you never know in this business, what you never know in this business is what you don't know, right? And for every person you catch, how many others haven't you caught, right? Um, and, and, and that is a very, very difficult thing to know. They also uh, have been targeting the U.S. military. There have been several recent arrests yes. of military people. And they also have recruited former military people to go do some training right. in China. Right, right, right. That's right. all part of the intelligence game, too, isn't it? Yeah, I wouldn't say the second is intelligent, and that's open, right? I mean, people see that happening. Um, that is, that's, that's, you know, that's a different kind of thing. Um, Although those people would have been privy to certain kinds of information um, about um, uh, deployments potentially or technologies sure. that they could be sharing. I don't know whether those are classified or not, right? Okay. Um, and it's certainly being done done openly, right, in, in the view of everybody. So um, in my view, the United States needs to uh, you, you know, pass laws to make sure that that can't happen. And what about their targeting of U.S. military personnel in service? So I would imagine that they are targeting across the board. They are targeting the intelligence community. They are targeting the policy community, including the White House. Um, and they are targeting the U.S. military. They are targeting U.S. corporations. They are targeting U.S. universities. Um, they are targeting the national labs. They are targeting across the board. So I'd love to talk a little bit about some of the emerging technologies and what um, opportunities some of these may prevent for intelligence agencies. When you look at the realm of things that are being developed now, what strikes you as having the most potential as a tool for intelligence gathering? Um, I think you'd have to put, you know, there's, there are 19 um, 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 emerging critical and emerging technologies on the White House's list. Um, they're all important, um, but I would put microelectronics at the top of the list because every other critical technology depends on it. Okay, so explain microelectronics. Are we talking chips. about chips? We're talking okay. about chips, right? Um, we're talking about um, the fact that the U.S., while it doesn't fabricate that many chips, right? Doesn't fabricate chips at scale anymore. Um, the best designed chips in the world are designed here, right? Think NVIDIA. Um, and they would have an interest, right, in stealing that technology. Um, so I would put microelectronics at the top of the list. Um, then I would put AI next, right? Because AI is gonna enhance every other critical technology. Um, AI is going to allow you to do everything else better, faster, um, with more with more insight and more discovery, right? Than than you could do without it. So AI is absolutely second. Um, and then and then I think there's a grouping next, right? Quantum, right? Um, the, the 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 race to a quantum computer, and the race to the ability to decrypt. Everything you've already stolen, which you cannot yet read because it's encrypted in a way that you can't break, right? The race to, to get there is, is incredibly important, right? If they get there first, 
they're going to be able to learn so much about how the U.S. intelligence community operates, how the U.S. military operates, um, and we can't let that happen. Um, so I think those are kind of the keys. So with quantum, is there a way to get ahead of that wave and quantum proof? Yes, yes. Encryption? So there, there's, there's, there's quantum resistant um, encryption, right? There is, there's, that's being worked on, right? So you, you encrypt things today that when a quantum computer is actually shows up, it still can't decrypt that, right? And, and we are working on that today. They're working on that today, right? That's a, that's a part, part-time solution, though, to the problem, right? Um, it's still, it, that, that race to get to quantum supremacy, if you want to call it that, right, is, it is still extraordinarily important. And even if we develop this way for protecting communications from quantum, that goes for things that are being written today as opposed to all those past communications that they already have in their possession or we already have in our possession, right. correct? Right, exactly right. And it's not only what they have, right? It's what other governments have. Think, think the Russians, right? So you think the Chinese, if they develop this technology, if not going to share it with, with Russia, you know, they will, absolutely. Um, large language models yeah. and AI, a lot of concern yeah, yeah. about its potential to generate disinformation and yeah. spread it. In fact, there sure. have been several recent cases where, what was it, the Maui wildfires, where they even created imagery yes. that looked, to the average eye, fairly authentic. Yes. How worried you are you about, so about that So here's what I would tool? say. Here's what I would say is, is, is every technology ever developed by man has an upside and it has downsides. Right, um, the 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 church bells of the Middle Ages, right, had a huge upside, which was to draw people into church. It had a huge downside when they were turned into the first canons. Um, people don't realize that. No, that's a story every, I haven't heard before. Every technology has upsides and downsides. has has upsides you can take advantage of, and downsides that you have to mitigate. And AI, you know, fits that to a T. Um, there are already private sector companies working on deep fake detection, right? Um, I'm involved with some of them. Um, and, and so that work will, will, will continue. It will be very good. Um, getting it into government, I think, will be more of the challenge. Um, but the last point I'd make about this is that if you think about, if you think about the adversary's use of AI and our defense against it, right? So... The adversary's use of it is to create these deep fakes, and we're trying to detect them, right, and, and challenge what they're doing. The offense always gets to move first. Yes. Cyber is the same way. The offense gets to move first, right, and the defense has to catch up. Um, and that's a huge advantage, right? Think, think of a football game where the offensive line can move a half a second before the defensive line, right? Huge advantage. Um, and so it, 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 we are going to suffer from the downsides of these technologies. And we're just gonna have to, have to work really hard to stay as close on the defense as we possibly can. You have written and spoken about the intelligence community leveraging open source information yeah. more effectively than it does. First, give us a definition of open source yeah. intelligence. What would that cover? Yeah, so open source um, includes two things. It includes publicly available information information that I can that I can go to the internet and just ask for and I get 
Um, and it importantly involves something called commercially available information that you have to pay for. And commercially available information is data that is created by businesses in the course of doing their business. Right? Think of all the apps on your phone. They collect a tremendous amount of data that those app owners now have in their possession. Um, and that information is not publicly available, but you can buy it if those corporations are willing to sell it. So two different kinds of information. Um, massive amounts of information, right? Um, and that's kind of the definition of open source. So what could it give the intelligence community? So just, just think about what Bellingcat does with open source information, right? It identifies... Um, you know, what the Russians are doing covertly in a number of different areas, right? It's very powerful. The information that is available commercially would kind of knock your socks off. I don't even want to say it here because if I said it, maybe the adversaries would stop doing certain things. Um, but it's, there is information that is commercially available that if we collected it using traditional intelligence methods, it would be top secret sensitive and you wouldn't put it on a database, you'd keep it in a safe. So that information's out there and now we can use AI to help us sort through it. So there's not this avalanche of data. Yes, yes. And, and in a perfect world, you'd bring the, the, the open source information together with the traditional intelligence information in one place where the AI algorithms could sit on top of it. So was the IC doing this? So they're, at the, they're, they're beginning to do this, right? Um, they are, on AI, I'd, I'd say they're experimenting, which is, I think, probably the right place to be, right? And they're not, the intelligence community is not imposing, right, um, here's, how we're gonna, here's how we're gonna use this. Um, they're not, not imposing um, solutions. They're letting a thousand flowers bloom, which I think is the right thing to do. Um, I think there's a couple of, of significant issues that have to be dealt with. One is, is when you bring the data in, it's got to be brought in in a certain format, right? And that, that, that needs to be addressed by the intelligence community. And they're working on it, but it, it's not easy. Um, two is, is a lot of the traditional intelligence information is kept in what are called compartments, Yes. right? And um, compartments are created because intelligence can be so sensitive that only a handful of people should know this thing or that thing, right? Um, when I was there, there were, you know, um, maybe 40 or 50 compartments that, that I had access to. Now there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of compartments. Um, and so for large language models and AI to be able to do their thing, it has to get access to all of those different compartments or it's not gonna be as valuable as it could be. So that's, a, that's something else that has to be overcome. How are you gonna do that while protecting the access to those compartments? And then I think a, a, a third thing is we have to increase the speed with which the intelligence community and the government in general brings tools, private sector tools into government, right? There are issues on the contracting side, there are issues on the security side that while important, we need to find a way to speed up. I want to get to that in just a moment, but first, some people have suggested that what we should do is create a new open source intelligence agency. Yep. 
to deal with all this data. I'm on that list. You're on that I'm list. I'm on that list. Even though we already have, what, 18 different intelligence agencies? Yes. One more? Yes, one more. One more. One more. Um, why? Because today, the intelligence community's open source enterprise sits inside the Central Intelligence Agency and sits inside the agency that does um, clandestine collection, both technical and human, all source analysis, and covert action. Do you think it is going to get the resources and the attention that it deserves when it sits in the agency that does those three things? No. I've been there, right? Um, if you think about if you think about the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, right, and think about all of the images that come in it come in every day from exquisite government systems and all the all the commercial imagery that comes in, right? You know, they're looking at I don't know, you know, what number of new images every day. But that pales into, in, in, in comparison to the amount of new open source information that gets created every day. And there are hundreds and hundreds of analysts at NGA who do nothing but look at that imagery, right, and study it and analyze it. We need an organization that does that for open source, right, that, that has the focus on just that and has the scale to do for open source what NGA does for imagery. You have argued that there should be more cooperation between the intelligence community and private industry. How does that work when the intelligence community is all about keeping secrets? Yeah, look, it's not it it it's it's not it's not easy, um, but it's doable. You know, I made the mistake one morning when I was briefing President Bush of telling him that collecting intelligence in North Korea was hard, and he said, Michael. I expect you to do hard, right? So I, that would be my same answer, right? Um, there are there are issues that have to be dealt with because of the nature of the business, but you can absolutely you can absolutely deal with them. Look, if we can find Osama bin Laden at a single place on the planet at a particular moment in time, we can figure out how to how to interact at a high level, at a high level with the private sector. Is the private sector interested in cooperating with the intelligence agency? For a while, after the Snowden leaks in particular, it yeah. was, mm, no, I think they we're past that. You. I think we're past that, right? But what we have to do is if they, if they are comfortable with an open relationship, and some, some companies are, right, then, then you don't have a problem. But if a company wants to keep the relationship under wraps, we have to be able to guarantee and deliver on that promise. Do you have any concerns that you might be creating an intelligence industrial complex? No, no, no. Um, simply because the dollars in the intelligence community are so small relative to the Pentagon, um, you know, it's one tenth. The intelligence community's budget is one tenth. I'm sure Pentagon's you'd budget. like it to be larger. By I the would way. much. <laughs> yes, I would move like you know one percent of the Pentagon's budget right to the intelligence community, and we'd all be better off. Um, but I don't worry about that, right? And to the extent, to, and, and and it also suggests that that's a problem, right? Um, in and of itself, and I'm not sure it is. Um, I want more cooperation, right, with the private sector. I want the private sector's insights on where the Chinese are on AI. Um, you know, who, who, do you think, who do you think has a better sense of where the Chinese are on microelectronics? The US government or Intel, 
right? So I want to be able to get their insights on where our adversaries are at. Um, I want to be able to, to bring in the technology that they're developing as fast as possible. Um, I want the intelligence community on the cutting edge of technology. I want it to keep them there, right? Um, and only a robust relationship with the private sector can deliver on that. You mentioned procurement. That's certainly one of the problems. Is there, is there just basically the agility in government to adapt, given the speed with which innovation's happening? So not under the current practices and not under the current culture, right? Those have to change. And I think they are starting to change, but there's a lot more work that needs to be done. You know, what's, um, what's an example of a bureaucratic process? Um, if you're gonna bring, if you're gonna bring technology to the high side, right? If you're gonna bring technology to a top secret network, right, it's gotta go through a security vetting process. Absolutely it does. But that security vetting process doesn't need to be done at the end of the process when you decide to bring technology in, right? Move it up and do it in parallel with say the contracting process or the budgeting process. Right, so so figure out how to do things differently on the things that you know you have to do. Right, the Central Intelligence Agency just figured out a way to get the median time for bringing in a, a, in a new applicant to 180 days, down from a couple of years. So they figured that out. Let's figure it out with regard to security for bringing new tech in. Right, um, on the cultural side, um, contracting officers and um, security officers have a bias toward no. Why do they have a bias toward no? Because they don't get in trouble if they say no. They only get in trouble if they say yes and something bad happens, right? So we have to, we have to change that culture. Um, and, and at the end of the day, we have, to, we have to leave decisions about risk up to the leadership and not leave it at the working level of agencies. Um, that's what every corporation does, right? If there's a decision to be made, the CEO gets briefed on, here's the upsides, here's the risk, here's how we think we can mitigate them, here's the risk you're still taking, what do you want to do? And right now, that's too low in agencies and it needs to move to the top. Does the IC have the technical talent that it needs? And can it attract it if it doesn't? Yeah, that, that's a very good question, right? Um, one of the great advantages of, of the intelligence community is that people come and tend to stay for a career. So when I, I think the attrition rate is higher today, but when I walked out the door in 2013, the attrition rate of the Central Intelligence Agency was 3%. Too low, too low, right? You want more flow through of, of, of folks so that you bring in more recent skill sets, right? Um, it's higher now, um, but it's a it's a huge advantage in people staying and and you know and committing to a to the mission for that long. It's a disadvantage in terms of bringing in those new skill sets. So I think the 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 intelligence community needs to think of 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 ways to bring in that talent. One of the things I've suggested to them, um, I don't think they've taken me up on it. One of the things I've suggested to them is create sort of like a White House fellows program, right, where you bring in the top talent in the country and you assign them to work somewhere in government, right, for, for, for a year or two years. And then at the end of those, that year or two years, a lot of them go back to the private sector, 
Some of them stay because they fall in love with public service. There should be an intelligence community tech fellows program, right, where you bring in the best and brightest from the Stanfords and MITs and say, you're going to work for us for a year, and you're going to work on this important issue. And at the end of the year, you can, you, can, you know, Godspeed, or maybe you fall in love with the work. Or maybe you're lured away by that big paycheck in the private sector, but... But my experience, right, my experience, you know, um, 33 years, um, not a single day I didn't want to go to work, looked forward to Mondays, not Fridays, right? The mission is so compelling that a lot of people, when they get a taste of the mission, the paycheck doesn't matter anymore. To sum up, what's your top line message to the intelligence community when it comes to technology? is you have to come at this systematically. You have to sit down and say, what's our objective, right? To get to the cutting edge of technology and to stay there. What do we have to do to do that? And put programs in place to make that happen and then put in place the oversight to make sure that those things are happening. You know, people ask me all the time, did Leon Panetta make a difference to the hunt for bin Laden? Because we never stopped looking for him. So, so Leon Panetta shows up, did he make a difference? He made a huge difference. Why? Because his first month on the job, he got a briefing from those folks who were hunting for bin Laden. And at the end of the briefing, it was hour long, at the end of the briefing, he said, that's great, guys. You're going to come back, and you're going to brief me every week, and you're going to tell me how you're doing. Right? You don't want to come to that meeting, and nothing happened in the last week. So the DNI... And the heads of the agencies need to say to the people who are working on this tech problem, you need to come see me every week and tell me how you're doing in implementing these programs. That's leadership. Michael Morrell, former acting director and deputy director of the Central Intelligence Agency. Thanks a lot for joining us today. It's great to be with you, Gene. Thanks. And this is NatSec Tech from the Special Competitive Studies Project. I'm Gene Mazur. Thanks a lot for joining us. 